1: Hello, I'm Aria, a volunteer host for the New Book Network's National Security Channel. I'm here to introduce you to groundbreaking authors, and together, I hope we can explore books that perhaps don't fit under the traditional national security umbrella. I tend to view these issues as intersectional, and I think we should strive to consider disciplines and topics that stretch our understanding of what is relevant to national security. A little about me. I work as a counsel on the House Judiciary Committee. As a standard disclaimer, the statements, questions, or opinions shared on this podcast do not reflect those of my employer. I do this for fun, to chat with brilliant people, and to explore new and interesting books. Now, onto the real reason we're all here the book and our intrepid author. I am delighted to introduce to you my first guest, Professor Nadine Strawson. She is the John Marshall Harlan Professor of Law at the New York Law School. From 1991 to 2008, she was the president of the ACLU, where she was both the youngest person and the first female head of the organization. She is currently a member of the ACLU's National Advisory Council, Mm -hmm. as well as the advisory boards of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, the Heterodox Academy, and the National Coalition Against Censorship. In addition to being an accomplished attorney, was named twice to the National Law Journal's America's 100 Most Influential Lawyers list. She is a prolific author. But more importantly, Professor Strawson has a fun side and is a budding thespian, having appeared in Eve Ensler's award winning play, The Vagina Monologues, during a week long run in DC. Today, we are going to discuss her recently updated book called Hate Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Professor, it is delightful to have you on the podcast. Welcome.
2: I'm so happy to be here, Arya. Is it okay if we can be on a first-name basis, I hope? Oh,
1: I would love that. That would be great. <laughs> um, so how are you surviving right now during the during the craziness? I hope everything is well. I am
2: so fortunate. I want to start with that because when I consider all of the misery that people are suffering all over the world, including dying and having enormous health adverse, health impacts and um, losing jobs and losing uh, homes. I am so fortunate that none of those tragedies has befallen me. And also, since I do love my work, which is crusading for human rights and exercising my free speech rights to defend everybody else's free speech rights, uh, it is true that all of my nonstop uh, in-person speaking engagements have been canceled due to COVID. But My calendar has quickly repopulated with online opportunities to continue to evangelize, including through your wonderful podcast. So thank you for the opportunity.
1: Uh, I'm glad that you have remained unscathed during what has been a strange time, I think, for everybody, and one that does not seem like it is going away anytime soon. Um, Have you? You've heard
2: reports, I'm sure, of a purported vaccine in the offing, supposedly shortly before the November election. We'll see.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, we can only hope that something is, uh, there is a solution soon. Um, I think what would be helpful first is if you told folks listening a little bit about yourself and how you got into the business of essentially civil liberties, advocacy, and defending uh, First Amendment rights uh, just overall? I have been committed to the basic notion
2: of civil liberties, which is synonymous with human rights. As far back as I can remember, that even before I had studied any intellectual a discipline that would provide, provide a rational basis for those beliefs. It was just something that I believed from the time I was a small child, that all of us are individuals who should be respected, who should have certain basic freedom and dignity and equality. And I felt that very strongly within the family and also within my public school system, So I was really, really delighted as I got older to learn that we actually had a constitution and civil rights laws and other measures that were designed specifically to protect those rights. I also became aware very early on of how often rights that existed in theory did not exist in reality. I was quite young when they civil rights movement in the mid-20th century was at its height, and it was just absolutely horrifying and heartbreaking to see uh, televised images of demonstrators, people who were simply seeking to exercise the fundamental right to vote, being beaten in the most brutal ways. So uh, it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to have been able to get the education, in my case, law, although there are many other educational paths uh, that have enabled me to aim my professional life at uh, trying to bring the reality closer and closer to the ideals that were set out in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Uh, But we were certainly far away from them at the beginning We've made a lot of progress, but we still have a lot more progress to make.
1: So you've actually kind of already touched, but I'd like to delve a little deeper into one of the overarching themes that I think is at the heart of the book and in just your body of work in general. And that's this issue of our First Amendment rights being a human right, but also as a matter of national security, because I think it's it's fair to say that a lot of Americans have resigned themselves to accept a certain level of restriction on their civil liberties in exchange for safety and national security. So understanding that basic premise, why do you view and, and, and you articulated this in the book, why do you view protecting free speech? not only as a matter of as a human right, but also as a matter of of national security and why that should be a national security priority, rather than this Um, sort of nebulous concept that people think about?
2: Great question, Aria. And first of all, no civil libertarian or human rights advocate has ever argued that these rights should be absolute without any exception or limitation whatsoever. Nobody has made that argument. What distinguishes advocates of human rights and civil liberties from those who don't share that commitment is that we demand, and more importantly, the United States Constitution itself demands that government bears an appropriately heavy burden of justification. Lawyers call it a burden of proof in order to justify any restriction on any fundamental right. Uh, And now I'm going to tell you what the legal test is. It is usually called strict scrutiny. And what that means is that the courts will take a hard look at the government's claims. The courts will demand actual evidence that speech, for example, causes uh, certain harm, and that the only way to prevent that harm is, or to rectify it, is to impose a limitation on speech. Likewise, with respect to national security, if we can go beyond speech for a moment, um, when the we had the 9/11 terrorist attacks, the ACLU, together with a large, diverse group of human rights and civil liberties organizations, issued a statement calling for us, to, and we called it a campaign, uh, at the Safe and Free Campaign. That we, it, it's a false dichotomy to suggest that we have to choose between the two, yes, certain restrictions on freedom might be necessary in order to promote safety or national security. But just because the government asserts that there is a national security justification doesn't mean that that measure actually does make us safer. And let me give one notorious example from American history. The internment, mass internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, uh, many of whom, there were over 110,000, many of them were U.S. citizens. In retrospect, the government acknowledged that there was no evidence that a single one of them had actually engaged in or threatened to engage in espionage or sabotage. So that was the worst of both worlds, massive, deprivation of human rights without any promotion of national security um, in exchange. There's a famous statement that's attributed to Benjamin Franklin uh, when he said those who would trade a little, little liberty for a little security will deserve neither and lose both.
1: That's, that's uh, an incredibly helpful, and I actually I had forgotten about that Ben Franklin quote, and I'm, I'm from the Philadelphia area, so it always always brings me joy when I hear him uh, flagged by learned authors such as yourself. Uh, you explained strict scrutiny, and I think that was incredibly helpful for, especially since it's such a complex issue. Could you also walk through the two principles you go through in the book, which mm-hmm. is content neutrality and the emergency principle, because I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand the basic contours of what kind of speech is protected and when it's not.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, free speech law is very complicated and there's a very large body of law, but there are two four principles which the Supreme Court has called the bedrock principles underlying that entire body of law. And before I go into more detail about what they are, I do want to stress, Aria, that for all of the differences and debates and dissents among Supreme Court justices, these two core principles are consistently agreed upon by justices all across the ideological spectrum. And that's really saying a lot, right, from left to right. So, the uh, first principle, the viewpoint neutrality principle, sometimes called the content neutrality principle, means that government must remain neutral with respect to the content, the viewpoint, the idea, the message that the speech conveys, no matter how disliked even detested, the viewpoint might be. That alone is not a justification to suppress the speech. If you dislike the idea, if you repudiate it, if you disagree with it, then the remedy is to answer it, to refute it, to deny it, to respond to it. In other words, more speech, not less speech. However, If we get beyond the content or viewpoint of the speech and instead look at its overall context, the Supreme Court has said that in a particular context, speech with any message, including a hateful message, uh, may, if that speech in that context directly causes or threatens certain specific imminent serious harm such that it presents an emergency and the only way to prevent that emergency is to suppress the speech, then the speech can and should be suppressed. So in other words, that heavy burden of strict scrutiny would be satisfied, right? Because there would be no speech restrictive, uh, less speech restrictive alternative to avert the emergency or the harm that the speech was directly and imminently uh, bringing about. If I can give you a couple examples so we get away from these abstract principles, uh, I can illustrate both the viewpoint neutrality principle and the emergency principle through the horrific events in Charlottesville almost exactly three years ago. When the Unite the Right White Supremacists were demonstrating in Charlottesville with the most odious messages expressing the most repulsive viewpoints, including chanting blood and soil, the Nazi chant, and you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. The sole fact that meant that, those messages were so abhorrent is not a justification for stopping them from marching. So my organization, the ACLU, came to the defense of their free speech rights. And even more importantly, the federal judge agreed that their free speech rights could not be suppressed based on um, how vile their message was. But Uh, When contrary to their sworn affidavits in that litigation in which they swore that they were not planning and would not engage in any violence or any threatening conduct, um, instead, completely, you know, in opposition to what they had sworn, they show up en masse brandishing lighted picky torches and other weapons that crosses the line that an emergency of actual violence or imminent violence, and everybody agrees, to the best of my knowledge, that that can and should have been punished. And there was a report that was done after these cataclysmic events that was um, mandated by the city council, a nonpartisan report. It was done by a law firm, and it strongly condemned all law enforcement officials or not having enforced the laws that all oh, that did prevent uh, the the threats and of violence and the actual violence that took place.
1: I'm really glad uh, that you brought up the Charlottesville example because it, it it leads nicely into my next question, which you know, violent groups, right? Whether foreign or domestic, they've they've taken really full advantage of the freedom and ease of access the internet and now social media platforms provide them either to promote propaganda or to expand their recruitment and your book and which you know the groups who showed up at Charlottesville did 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 exactly both of those things your book sort of goes into this growing conversation about the responsibility social media platforms have to curb this type of speech because it is inappropriate at times for the law to do so. But you, and this is, for the most part, that conversation is around the content involving like terrorists or extremists or disinformation. You argued in the book that any effort to restrict such content would be ineffective or even counterproductive. And I was hoping you could go into why that is the case, because I think that's, that's one of those things, you know, people see folks like the guys who showed up at Charlottesville and are like, why are they allowed to even have a platform in the first place? Why, why are they able to recruit people in the way that they do? We should do something about it.
2: And, you know, it's so interesting that you're asking me these questions and you work for Congress because last year, as I shared with you, I testified before a congressional committee specifically on uh, the the, the topic was announced as what are social media companies doing enough to restrict extremist content and uh, disinformation and misinformation And then they also discussed hate speech, because those are the big three, the three kinds of expression that are protected under American law and yet are generally feared to cause a great deal of harm. So my answer can really um, apply to all three uh, controversial and problematic kinds of speech, Aria. And here, let me say the reason why I oppose censorship is not because I deny that this kind of expression can and does cause harm. In other words, there, the mere fact that speech doesn't rise to the high level of posing an emergency, right, so that it can be outlawed, doesn't mean that it doesn't still cause harm. The reason why I oppose censorship Uh, goes beyond the harm analysis. And most arguments for censorship start and end with saying, this speech causes harm, right? Um, Disinformation causes harm. There was a whole famous book on the other side of the hate speech debate uh, whose title is The Harm in Hate Speech. But when you think about it logically, you can't justify censorship just because the speech causes harm you also have to ask a couple other questions logically. One is, would the censorship meaningfully reduce the harm? Or rather, is it possible that the censorship would actually increase the harm or have some unintended harmful consequences? Another logical question you have to ask is, would there be another way that we could at least as meaningfully reduce the harm that would not result in suppressing free speech. And all of those other questions weigh, the answers to all of those other questions weigh against censorship. Uh, Throughout history, around the world, down to the present day, no matter how well-intended censorship is, it does more harm than good. Uh, with respect to um, hate speech, and, and, and let me explain the reason why. Hate speech, terrorism, uh, extremism, disinformation, misinformation, these are all inherently vague, broad concepts, right? No two people can agree. There's a famous statement that a saying that one person's terrorist is somebody else's freedom fighter, right? One person's hated message is somebody else's cherished message. To give an example that's very contemporary, um, as an advocate of human rights, uh, including for long-oppressed racial minorities and as an opponent of police abuse, I support the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's positive, pro-justice, loving speech, and yet many public officials have denounced Black Lives Matter advocacy as hate speech. Um, some, some Bible verses that are cherished by, by Christians and, and Muslims and others um, that have certain pronouncements about homosexuality and about women are considered hate speech by uh, many advocates of women's rights and of LGBT rights. And yet uh, for the proponents, the believers in that religious doctrine and those religious texts, that is loving speech, trying to redeem people from uh, what they believe will be condemnation to, to everlasting torment in hells. And same thing with misinformation, I mean, President Trump has one definition of fake news. Joe Biden has another definition of fake news. Twitter and Facebook are constantly debating where the line is between truth and falsity. And even in the context of the current pandemic, um, there's you know it's it's oversimplified to talk about what is true and what is false, because there's so much room for interpretation and nuance and debate. So censorship becomes a very subjective tool. Not surprisingly, it is disproportionately wielded by those in power to suppress the voices of dissidents, of opponents of the status quo of advocates for, uh, for social justice and for law reform and uh, uh, for any critics of current government policy. So we look to see how many countries around the world have outlawed disinformation and misinformation, uh, including in social media. And, and those laws are being used disproportionately to silence critics of government policy, including critics of the government's pandemic policies.
1: I'd like to come back to the to the racial justice issue uh, in a little bit. I just wanted to quickly hear your take, and you go through this in the book. Back to the to the tech company point, where they they under they're facing both congressional pressure, pressure from their industry, pressure from the public, pressure from the White House. There. It, it, in their efforts to try and look like they're managing this problem, they have their response has been at times to you know either to ban entire segments of con content or to arguably not do much at all. Uh, I think disinformation is probably the best example, especially related to elections. Um, what are the risks that you've noticed and that you've detailed in the book a bit and in your congressional testimony? What are the risks when these companies kind of engage in this overcorrection? Because we, we know what happens when, when the government does it. But what, what about when it is coming from the private sector? Great
2: question. And what you realize, and many of your fans oh, may not realize, because most people don't, is that the First Amendment only applies to the government. So we can't even rely on First Amendment rights if we believe that Facebook or Twitter, has unjustifiably taken down a post that we've made or kicks us off the platform altogether. And they wield such enormous power that that is very, very concerning. And I really do support finding some way uh, to persuade them or influence them to exercise their enormous power in a way that is consistent with free speech. I also recognize the pressures to create a welcoming community you don't people are not going to go online uh if they're subject to harassment and doxing and trolling and so forth and studies um sadly but not surprisingly have shown that of that women and and people of color are disproportionately subject to that kind of online harassment and that's not consistent with free speech either so Here is the answer that cyber liberties groups have uh, come up with so far, Aria, and uh, in something called the Santa Clara principles that were adopted a couple of years ago and are now being re-examined in light of subsequent developments. I'm sure the heart of them is going to be reaffirmed, but perhaps with more detail, uh, the, in, initiate, initiative was taken by a wonderful digital rights organization called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EF, working together with the ACLU and others, and basically advocating at least certain kinds of fundamental procedural protections. Notice, these companies have Uh, not by and large been clear about what their ever-changing policies are. We have to know what those policies are. They have to be transparent. If we are deemed to be in violation of some such policy, we have to be given advance notice and an opportunity to swiftly appeal. Now people are just banished and silenced without knowing why and without having an opportunity to do anything about it. And, you know, you talk about over-correction. There's, there's inevitably both an under-correction and an over-correction with respect to any any standards uh, for the basic reason that I talked about earlier. These standards, no matter how much detail uh, you use to articulate them are inevitably subjective and reasonable people are going to disagree about them. You know, some people think, as I said, that Black Lives Matter is, is discriminatory and hateful because it's somehow preferring Black lives over other lives. And yet, you know that uh, the phrase "blue lives matter" has been considered hate speech. The phrase "all lives matter" has been considered hate speech. Uh, even free speech has been considered hate speech. So, how no two people can possibly agree, even on a particular expression, and then you multiply that by the gazillions of communications that these companies have to deal with, uh, even if they have a tiny percentage of errors, they are going to be erroneously take down many expressions that should be protected, and they are erroneously going to leave up many expressions that should not be protected according to their very own standards. And I think this is particularly dangerous when it comes to election and political-related statements. The opening words in our Constitution are, we the people. We the people wield the sovereign government power under our democratic republic. And we cannot possibly effectively and responsibly exercise that power unless we have full access to information about those who are in elected office for those who are seeking elected office. So if Donald Trump or another politician says something that is hateful or disinfor- you know, disinformation uh, or problematic in any other way, I think it's especially important for voters to know about that so we can take that into account and in arguing against it and voting against the person who says it.
1: I don't know if you saw... This morning, there was the announcement by Facebook saying it was going to restrict political ads in the week leading up to the election. I, I have not looked at what the policy is in great detail, but I, since we're we're on that topic, was wondering if you had any, putting it into this context, had any thoughts on that?
2: I, like you, read the headline and didn't have yet have time to delve into the details, but Here was my first reaction, Aria. It reminded me of a Supreme Court decision that actually upheld a restriction on uh, political campaigning, saying that this particular restriction did satisfy strict scrutiny. Uh, And what it was, was to restrict electioneering, you know, campaigning communications within the uh, uh, close to a voting place, um, you know, a polling place, because it was felt that that would put undue pressure upon people in the process of deciding for whom to vote. And this struck me as somewhat analogous, right, that we want to create uh, a kind of buffer zone uh, during which people can reflect on the information that they've already heard. Now, I'm trying to make the strongest possible argument that occurs to me uh, in favor of it. I'm not pulled over by it, because you could equally argue, it seems to me, that um, you're not subject to pressure in when you're they're not physically intruding in your space, which is what uh, the social media, right? That's different to me from... Um, feeling a physical, potential physical intimidation when there's an actual person who's handing you literature, you know, as you're going in, in to cast your vote. Uh, and I do think that people have the right and the responsibility actually to consider information. That's what ads are, right? They're information and they're advocacy. Yeah. Important for free speech that we should take into account deciding how we're going to cast our votes. So it doesn't strike me as something that I think is going to be positive, but I I then do have the disclaimer that maybe I will be persuaded when I would learn more about it. What was your reaction? What was your reaction?
0: Uh, This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I I tend to be skeptical uh, of, of those of these efforts. Um, I have to be careful because of, of work uh, one of the things that I what has worried me when I see those kind of policies and and I and I actually in your book you go through a lot of examples is that things like that often end up suppressing useful information those types of policies and uh, you exactly. know've I've seen just something this may seem small in the grand scheme of things but I've seen it with when they when these platforms were trying to deal with the preponderance of fake news and disinformation they you were seeing a lot of the animal rescue groups were complaining that their as a result a lot of their posts um, and, and calls for 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 help were were being labeled as fake or were being taken down or were being blocked and so that is generally my sort of fear when I when I see those kind of policy changes but you know, at the same and time,
2: it, and you do on the affirmative because disinformation is incredibly dangerous, right? It can lead people to take health risks or endanger their health. Uh, it can really threaten democracy, and 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 so it ha- can have enormous adverse impacts both for individuals and for our society at large. But here, I think the classic remedy of More speech and more vigilance on the part of every single one of us is the only possible solution. You know, we can't depend on a paternalistic big brother government. I mean, it's so ironic. um, You know, my friends who are vehemently anti-Trump and saying, but we have to be protected against disinformation. The government should have a disinformation bureau. I'm saying you want Trump to be in charge of a disinformation bureau. But I would say the same thing if it were Joe Biden or anybody else. Um, these are decisions. These are very or I and I should add, Aria, if it's uh, a, a Facebook or a social media company or if it's a, a, a university. I don't want anybody else to take away from me my right and my responsibility to make my own investigations, my own decisions, my own evaluations. And here we need, and and, and we've been seeing more and more uh, really intense, what's usually called media literacy. People really need to learn, starting from the earliest ages, how to do their own research, how to look at fact-checking sources, How to look at original sources, how to look for indications that a particular communication is suspect or does it have indicia of of truth and credibility, Uh, because no amount of of screening or censoring is ever going to uh, catch all of the potential disinformation and other potentially harmful speech. So we are our own best and last line of defense.
1: You know, that, that that's that's absolutely true on, on so many fronts. I could share a funny story when when I was working on impeachment last year. You know, there's so there have been so many books written about the, the the previous impeachments. But as the committee, we had access to the original files. And so rather than reading the books that were written about these things, we just went to the actual old boxes and tried to decipher some of the faded handwritings, but you know, it it made a world of difference to see the actual stuff, like the actual materials that were the basis for you know countless books, countless legal analysis. You name it, it just it just made a world of difference because it helped. You, you're able to put things into context better. You're able to just approach you know novel problems a little bit better. And I think you know that's a that's a really good point you raise about. We all have to sort of do our own homework.
2: Um, you know, even something that seems fairly objective when you we now have video evidence and documentation of police encounters with civilians and two people looking at the same video clip are interpreting it in different ways, right? Uh, and the further back you get in history or the more complex the issue is, the more subject to debate it's,
1: it's going to be. It's actually, you know, that, that, that brings me to my next question, which, you know, this idea of when it, when people are seeing things that are, that are objective, right? Where they see a video of a shooting or they, they, they they see all of these different, or they see pictures or whatever it is, but they're still also on the incoming of lots of disinformation. And it's, it sort of, again, resulted in this call for action, this call for accountability. But going through what, what you've discussed already and what you argued in the book, if restricting the content or going at the material itself is not the answer, then the question is, is, well, what are we left to do, right? We Do we address in the context in which all of this is occurring? And you go through in the book in detail, but what are the... Does the law provide a mechanism for when, whether it's social, you know, again, to stick to the social media theme, because they're such a huge part of our lives now. Is there a mechanism that allows them to address the context of speech, whether it's hate speech or terrorist content or disinformation um, so that they can have, you know, they can be more proactive?
2: Okay, excellent question. And sticking with the social media. I would say that they have a uh, an opportunity and a responsibility, certainly, to take whatever steps they can uh, to call to the attention of law enforcement expression that is actually illegal. Right. Uh, as we've already talked about, expression that does satisfy the emergency principle can and should be punished, and the Supreme Court has recognized several categories of expression uh, that do satisfy that standard. Uh, let me run through a few of them, and 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 examples of this kind of speech have already been criminally prosecuted, or the basis for civil actions in the online media. Uh, One example that I alluded to when we were talking about the Charlottesville debacle is what the law calls a true threat. And lawyers say true threat to distinguish it from the very loosey-goosey way we use the term threat in everyday speech. So I've been on college campuses where students say, oh, I feel threatened by the speech Donald Trump gave last night, or I feel threatened by the fact that Ann Coulter is going to be speaking on my campus. No, that's not a justification for punishing Trump or Ann Coulter. But here is the definition of a true threat that can and should be punished when the speaker is addressing a specific, quite narrow, quite small audience. In other words, directly targeting face to face and the speaker intends to instill a reasonable fear that the uh, audience members are going to be subject to harm and reasonable fear means it's not it's an objective standard not a subjective standard so if somebody's thin skin and overly fearful that doesn't count and i think and more importantly many experts think that the situation in Charlottesville did arise to that standard even before there was actual violence. The fact that they were masked there and marching and brandishing lighted torches does, I think, constitute a true threat that could have been punished. And there have been a couple cases involving online expression um, where there have been uh, prosecutions and civil damages actions based on, on, on true threats. Another example would be targeted harassment or bullying, where the expression, again, is targeted at an individual or a small group of individuals and is sufficiently severe or pervasive and objectively offensive Again, not a thin-skinned individual reaction, but would a reasonable person uh, be offended? And does it deprive that person of meaningful educational or employment opportunities? And again, there have been online situations, sadly, where that standard has been satisfied. And uh, unfortunately, uh, women and members of minorities tend to be disproportionately the victims, but law enforcement can be called in and and has been called in. And to the extent the social media companies can enforce those standards, they should, Uh, but they should um, also take affirmative measures, which I know that they are doing, uh, which is to, you know, before I even say that, let me, let me mention another point here, Aria, which we haven't expressly talked about. And that is, What the social media companies are doing, to the best of our knowledge, because again, they're not transparent, we don't have as much information as we should have, Uh, but the information strongly indicates that they are engaging in enormous data gathering about all of us without our consent, without our knowledge. Uh, Some people call it surveillance capitalism, right? We're not getting these services for free, we're trading in our privacy and just more detailed information about ourselves, our lives, our thoughts, our beliefs, associations than people even realize. And that in turn is used to program these algorithms and artificial intelligence that determine who will get what information in what order and what will be amplified and what will be downgraded. And that to me is deeply inconsistent with uh, individual privacy and individual freedom of choice when we, we, we think we're making our own choices about what we see, uh, but we're really not, that we're in fact being manipulated by uh, unknown, undisclosed, unconsented to algorithms. And I think that is a deep, deep, deep violation of the most fundamental human rights and human dignity and autonomy.
1: Yeah, the, the algorithm issue is, is one that I frankly don't know enough about in part because tech is not my strongest issue and understanding how algorithms work is not my strong suit. Um, but I, I want to go back to something you mentioned a little, just a couple of seconds ago, where you talked about um, illegal conduct. Could you just briefly walk through... For the listeners, the distinction between the advocacy of illegal conduct versus the intentional incitement of it. Because as our real lives and our online lives are blurring together, we're seeing that that is getting confused. And I think I think that would be helpful to hear from you. And I, and I know you go through this in the book. Like, Where is that line? Thank you. I will draw that line and it occurs to me that there's
2: another distinction I should draw between hate speech and hate crime. So first, in a unanimous 1969 decision, the Supreme Court uh, held that even advocacy of illegal or violent conduct is protected. So I can say, I think you ought to burn down that police headquarters in protest. That would be protected. Or I think that the anti-prostitution laws are endangering sex workers. I think you should violate that law. That's advocating illegal conduct. That is protected. Uh, What is on the other side of the line, the Supreme Court said, is intentional incitement of illegal or violent conduct that is likely to happen imminently. And uh, there, there are very few actual examples that satisfy that standard. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the closest case in the Supreme Court, they actually decided it on another uh, legal point, but this would have satisfied that intentional incitement of imminent uh, lawless or violent conduct. It was a case that came from Wisconsin oh, a couple decades ago now, Uh, There was a then-new movie, so this will date it, called Mississippi Burning, which was about the violence against civil rights demonstrators and activists in Mississippi during the civil rights movement. And there was a horrible scene of the beating of a black boy who was just kneeling and praying, and he was beaten up by some white supremacists. So the case involved a young African-American man in Wisconsin, Todd Mitchell and several of his friends. And they were talking about this movie and Mitchell standing on a sidewalk. And Mitchell says to his friends, do you all feel happed up to move on some white people? And they say, yeah. And a white boy is walking on the other side of the street. And Mitchell says, there's a white boy. Go get him. And they jumped on the kid and they pounded him into a coma. That was intentional incitement of imminent violence. But if Mitchell had said, gee, I think that we ought to get revenge, uh, that would not satisfy the Supreme Court's test. Now, let me give you a real-world example that involved Donald Trump. I'm sorry to keep using him, and I could uh, give other examples, but this is the most analogous on this particular issue. Uh, There was actually a lawsuit that was brought against him, and I think even— He was being investigated for potential criminal charges during the first presidential campaign because at campaign rallies, he made a lot of statements that were kind of instigating, um, triggering, inducing his supporters to attack uh, demonstrators against him at those rallies. And he made statements. I mean, they've gotten a lot of press. I can't remember the exact wording, but to the effect of, you know, in the old days, we would carry them out on a stretcher. Remember that? Or, you know, take care of them. I'll have my lawyer pay. I'll pay for your your legal fees. And the particular case that went the furthest in the court system uh, went all the way to an an intermediate appellate, federal court. Um, Trump said, to his supporters, uh, get them out of here, get them out of here, Went talking about protesters. And his supporters did rough up some protesters, assaulted them, and caused some um, hopefully minor injuries, not major injuries. And the judge's, judges said, you know, this is a very close case. It's more than advocacy, but On balance, we're deciding it doesn't satisfy the intentional incitement of imminent violence standards because Trump added, don't hurt them, right? He said, get them out of here. And he had some other insinuations. But the fact that he said, don't hurt them was enough for the judge to say that should be protected. And I agree with that. I think if it's a close case, you have to err in favor of
1: protecting the speech. So sort of sticking with the idea of, you know, what people say or what they say online and then what happens in real life, what are some possible solutions that can be used to curb these kind of harms? Because as I'm sure you have experienced, you know, that, that sort of the corrosive harm of whether it's someone who's experienced hate speech or is harassed online, right? It gets to, it gets to folks and it, it, it can be very traumatic in, in some instances. So what are, what are some possible solutions? And you go and, and you go into this, into the book in the book, but if you could sort of walk through what you think, that would be really helpful.
2: And, and there's never going to be a perfect solution. Aria for here's a really important reason, because a lot of legitimate criticism is really hurtful, right? Right. We can never protect, right? can never protect ourselves against, criticism, even unfair criticism. And so we have to, among other things, we have to develop the resiliency uh, and the judgment and the willpower, first of all, to ignore uh, certain expression that is counterproductive. And I know many people who have canceled their social media accounts or stopped using them or really strictly rationed. Uh, what they look at and what they don't look at because they just feel it's not a productive use of my time. It's bad for my morale, right? Nobody's forcing you to use it. Um, secondly, that you should have and, and you should have access to uh, training, including counseling and psychological and mental health resources that can help develop habits of resiliency. Uh, Many experts are now saying that this is something that we should basically teach in our school system. Many of them uh, advocate cognitive behavior therapy to better prepare all of us to deal with the inevitable negative expressions and negative real-world phenomena that we're going to have to deal with, right? Um, you can try to shield yourself from some of it, but you're never going to shield yourself from the actual uh, pain and horror and, and violence, that, as well as all the beautiful things that exist in, in, in the world. And it is wonderful to learn that experts are absolutely convinced that every single one of us can develop uh, thicker skin And I personally have gone through this myself, by the way. I guess I can be kind of personal in a podcast, right? Please. Uh, I used to have a terrible time in in accepting criticism. I was very thin-skinned, especially when I thought it was unfair. And when I was thinking about running for the ACLU presidency, wow, you can imagine how much, you know, you're just sort of a... a lightning rod for all kinds of harsh criticism in that position, a lot of which is unfair and unfounded and very personally hurtful. Uh, and I wasn't sure that I could could stomach that. So I, I, I consulted with a friend of mine who was a mental health counselor, and she said to me, Nadine, uh, if you are taking this job, you just have to change your personality in that regard, and I can help you do it. And and if you can't, then you should step out of it because you, you're not condemned to, to this misery. And you know what, Aria, I did change. Uh, it was really very interesting. You know, people that, who didn't know me then, who know me now, can't believe when, they, when I say I used to not be able to, to take criticism. Um, in, in, in my book, I say we should be thick, develop thicker skin for ourselves, but thinner skin for other people. Because I think we also have a responsibility to speak up for other people who are assailed, whether it's somebody who is being unfairly attacked online. I had an experience this morning where I heard of a professor at another law school who was being attacked uh, for something that I think was completely justified, and she's being unfairly attacked. And it's on my list of things to do today to send her a supportive note. Uh, and uh, and and also to send that, circulate that support among those who have criticized her. So I think we should come to the support of those who we think are unfairly disparaged um, and, and refute those who are on the attack. I've now been talking a lot about what I would call wholesale strategies, you know, making big points uh, to, you know, you can debate ideas and, refute negative, hateful, discriminatory ideas. But there's also a retail strategy, which I was so blown away by. I really hadn't known about this before I did my research for the book, and I continue to follow with great interest. People, There are a lot of people who go online specifically to seek out hate mongers and extremists and propagandists, to engage with them one-on-one in the hope of changing their minds. And there have just been these amazing stories that have been documented, and they're the subject of TED Talks and memoirs and podcast interviews of even former leaders of hate-monger organizations who have been redeemed, and that's the term they use, as a result of online exchanges with people. who and, and they all say, you know, you can't do it with force or, you know, with excoriation or, you know, shrieking, screaming, whatever the online equivalent is. You have to approach these people with empathy and compassion, not for their ideas, but for them as people. Because a lot of people come to hateful organizations and groups, not because of some pre-existing ideology, but rather because of something in their lives, or, you know, they've got some psychological problem, they've got some family problem, they don't have friends, so it becomes a bonding, they become ripe fruit for recruiting into these groups, it gives them a sense of identity and purpose in life. And so you have to nurture uh, trusting relationship with other people and other bonding opportunities. So there's just like an infinite way that we can use our free speech to um, to counter the potential adverse impacts of hateful or extremist or any kind of negative speech.
1: I really like that idea of we need to, as individuals should have thicker skin, but we should view others as having thinner skin so that we're just more mindful of how we interact with those around us. I think that's a really good point. In politics, we just have to have thick skin. This is what I have found in, in, in my workplace life and just real life in general. Um, I want to go back to some of the issues you flagged in the beginning, and that is how all of this impacts various Social justice movements. I thought the book goes into a really a, a remarkable amount of information on this, but there was one quote in particular that I thought was incredibly timely, and that is quote: "Equal rights movements have depended on, on robust freedom of speech." End quote. And thinking of the of the ongoing civil rights movement that's surging across the country with regards to police brutality and systemic racism, there's again, there's just always there are these calls for action. There's these calls for accountability and especially geared towards the news media or social media platforms. But as your book goes through in detail, and as you kind of hinted at earlier, this comes at a risk. How has, in your experience, how has hate speech laws or, you know, counterterrorism laws, whatever you want to call them, how have they been, I guess, weaponized against the proponents of, racial justice or other civil rights movements? Like, What are those risks when you, when you start to try and censor what you view as dangerous speech?
2: And I will start speaking of timely by quoting John Lewis. Sadly, we just lost him, but it became an opportunity to celebrate his incredible, heroic uh, championship of human rights and free speech. I have a quote from him in my book, uh, which is very well known. It can't be said too often where he said, um, without freedom of speech and the right to dissent, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. He and Martin Luther King Jr. and C.T. Vivian, who sadly uh, also died recently, all of them strongly opposed censorship of any kind, including of paid speech for a number of reasons because they knew that any censorship tool would be used against them. Their messages were the ones that were deemed hateful and dangerous and subversive and extremist and terrorist. All of those epithets were literally used against civil rights advocacy. And before that, against abolitionist advocacy, the opponents of slavery Uh, and, um, you know, it's no coincidence that Martin Luther King wrote his historic letter from the Birmingham jail. Why was he in jail? He was in jail because he was trying to speak and to uh, demonstrate and to engage in peaceful protests. And that was deemed uh, a crime. It, you know, the fact that even well-intended anti-hate speech laws are inevitably turned against the very minority and disempowered voices and groups that are hoped to be protected. It's not a coincidence, Ari, for the reason that we already talked about, that these laws are so give so much subjective discretionary power to those who enforce them. Those who enforce them are representing the majority, the powers that be. So of course, they have every pressure and inducement and temptation in the world to use that power in ways that uh, promote and uh, and further entrench the status quo rather than giving voice to those who are seeking reform. And so throughout the 20th century, uh, with only one exception to the best of my awareness, all civil rights organizations, including the NAACP and the Anti-Defamation League, uh, all opposed censorship of hate speech. The one example that, uh, the one um, contrary example, no, I'm sorry, I can think of two contrary examples. Uh, at the begin earlier in the 20th century, there was support by the NAACP for censoring um, uh, Birth of a Nation that terrible racist film celebrating the Ku Klux Klan. So that was the initial position of the NAACP. But it then changed its position as it saw that this was a power that could do and would do more harm than good to the civil rights movement. Uh, The only other exception that I'm aware of is for once in its history, the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, uh, departed, company from the ACLU were usually collaborating on these issues. In a very famous controversial case we handled in the late 1970s in Skokie, Illinois, where we came to the defense of the free speech rights of a neo-Nazi group. And initially the ADL was on our side, but there was um, Skokie was really unusual because there was a large community of Holocaust survivors there. And they felt so pained by the notion that this country that had given them refuge uh, would allow marching by those who were uh, wearing swastika and and repeating Hitler's message. That was so painful that the ADL uh, supported their effort to censor the speech.
1: Have you found that when speech is censored, there is an impact on other first amendment protections and if, and are you seeing that play out now? Like, are there any specific examples that alarm you? It's, it's,
2: it's all a seamless web, right? Because, and, and that's exactly why to use the eight words that the ACLU used and Martin Luther King also used that all of these rights are indivisible If they are weakened and denied for one person or one group, they are not going to exist for another person or another group. And so going back to the Skokie case, if I may for a moment, in the ACLU's brief in that case, yet we argued, of course, we feel enormous sympathy for the people who live there. But first of all, they didn't have to watch the march was going to be in front of Village Hall. Nobody was forcing them to watch it. But even knowing that it's taking place, of course, is going to cause them great psychic harm. But that was exactly the argument that was made by um, the government or a community in Cicero, Illinois, a deeply racist and segregated uh, community in the very same state, another part of the state, where the Martin Luther King's movement was attempted to be stopped from demonstrating because the residents there said that they were, you know, deeply threatened and, and offended and felt that they were endangered by uh, desegregation. That to them was endangering their way of life and their personal safety. And so if that rationale had been allowed to censor the Nazis in Skokie, which it was not, easily won that case in the courts of law because of the viewpoint neutrality principle that you and I talked about a while ago. Um, But if we had lost that case, then we would have lost the case supporting free speech for uh, Martin Luther King in the community where he and his message was was deeply feared and reviled. Um, Today, um, there are, you know, it's so interesting because Freedom of speech and the associated freedom of assembly and association for protest has been violated and has been defended uh, respectfully for people and groups and movements with very different messages. So, if I look at the ACLU cases all over the country, you know, in some cases the protesters are demonstrating. In favor of masks and personal protective equipment and, and other and and, and and school closures and in other cases they're they're demonstrating against those measures. Um, in some places they're demonstrating in support of police and against defunding the police, and in other places they're uh, demonstrating for the opposite side of that issue. And it's the very same principles that will come to the defense of all of those messages, namely the viewpoint neutrality principle, right? Unless there is an imminent threat of, of, of violence or some other emergency, no matter how unpopular that message might be, even for the vast majority of people who are aware of it, it is still protected. Because if it's not protected, then the opposite message is going to be unprotected.
1: Yeah, that goes to your, the point you made in the very beginning on how this is these, these are human rights and also protecting them is a national security issue in and of itself. Because if you unravel one, you're going to unravel the rest of them. And then it's like, well, then what are you protecting? Um, so this is my, my last question because I've taken up uh, so much of your time already. What would... Un- what would be the, the most important lesson from your book that you, will, you would want listeners to think about, as especially those who listen to this channel, who work in this space, right? Who work on disinformation issues or hate speech or domestic terrorism or uh, extremist issues. What would be the, like the number one lesson you'd want them to take away from the book?
2: Great question. And I would say that the number one lesson I want folks to have is a question. And the question is, who should decide? Kind of a subspecies of that is, who should we trust? So who should decide what is hate speech and what is free speech? Who should decide whether black lives matter or blue lives matter or all lives matter is on one side of that line or another, who should decide what is disinformation and what is misinformation or what are plausible, debatable perspectives, who should decide what is extremist speech and what is terrorist speech as opposed to what is freedom fighting and what is important, uh, foreign affairs or human rights information. So, uh, Once you ask that question, I think there is an implicit answer. Um, My answer is that each one of us should decide. We should not entrust that enormous necessarily subjective power to anyone else, least of which big brother or big sister in the government or uh, very big brother and very big sister in that social media company.
1: Well, well that is, you know, now I'm going to think about that question, uh, for the remainder of the evening. <laughs> and I hope everybody who's listening does the same. Uh, Nadine, this was, it, it's an incredible book it, for, for our listeners who don't know, it's one of those books that's recommended that every first year law student reads. Uh, this has been incredibly insightful. Uh, if you can just hang on a second while I direct our listeners to one, please go buy the book if you haven't already. There was a link on the website. Uh, subscribe to the new books in national security podcast channel. Check out the other great new books network podcasts. I promise you won't regret it. Uh, we're living in crazy times. You know, stay safe, stay well, stay intellectually curious, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much, Aria.